Weston 53262. There was a pause, then the regularly spaced buzzing of an engaged number. Again, she said, and jumping down from the sofa across which she had been kneeling, Marjorie Fairfield walked over to the gramophone. For a moment, she hesitated between What'll I Do and Horsey, then decided on the valse, and as she swayed backwards to its rhythm across the room, a smile crept slowly upwards across her face, from the slight tremor at the corner of the small babyish mouth, upwards to where the freckled, tip-tilted nose wrinkled itself beneath the wide-set, wide-lashed hazel eyes. A smile of drowsy indolence and content. The sun was shining, the sky was blue, the air that drifted through the open window was warm with a sense of summer. Never, she thought, had the flat looked prettier. The faint primrose ceiling seemed to catch the sunlight and fling it back onto the fawn-grey carpet and pale sky-blue walls. Who could fail to be happy on such a day? I feel seventeen, she thought, and I am not certain that I don't look it. She paused for confirmation in front of the Chippendale mirror that hung between the fireplace and the door. Seventeen? Well, hardly seventeen. Twenty, perhaps. Twenty, or twenty-one. Not, at any rate, the twenty-eight that she really was. And anyhow, who would want to be seventeen again? Seventeen, when you were half a child and half a woman a stranger in the twilight between two worlds. Oh no, she wouldn't be seventeen again, with all that still in front of her. Better be what she was, with the worst behind her. Nothing could ever come to hurt her more than that telegram, three days after Nerve Chapelle. Widowed at nineteen, and after six weeks of marriage, she had weathered that, the worst had gone, taking probably the best along with it. The one was the complement of the other. You couldn't have the one without the other. Well, she didn't care. She was happier now, letting the days drift past. And she smiled back at the warm-coloured, reflected oval face, clasped round below the neck by its helmet of warm brown hair. Smiled back, and slowly, lazily drew her hand downwards to smooth out the fringe upon her forehead. From the gramophone came suddenly the crunch of a completed record. Good for the sound box, that, she thought. But she made no attempt to rescue it. Let the thing run down. She had had enough music for the afternoon, and all the evening she would be dancing. She remained before the glass, smoothing the hair where it was drawn away tightly from the fringe, fondling at the plaited circles about her ears, turning her head to see them from a different angle. Then lazily, she stretched her arms above her head and turned slowly back towards the sofa. He should have finished that talk by now, she murmured. It's a good ten minutes since I rang up last and lifting the receiver of the telephone. Weston 53262, she repeated. But again, there came after a pause the regular intermittent buzzing. Three times running. And with Everard due at any moment now.
She could hardly ask the exchange to ring her. It was just the sort of thing that would make him jealous. And besides, what of all that she wanted to say to Ransom could be said with Everard Tristram sitting beside her on the sofa, his fingers fondling at her arm? Three times running, though, whom had he been speaking to, she wondered. She was so ignorant, really, of his life. That he was thirty-three years old, that he was unmarried, that his parents were dead, that he had resigned at the end of the war his commission in the Coldstream Guards, that he lived in a three-room flat in Upper Sloan Street with his old Batman as his cook and valet. That was the merest skeleton of his life, a collection of facts that were in the possession of ninety-nine percent of his acquaintances.